Hello and welcome to the Rational National Podcast for Thursday, May 2nd, 2019. Coming up on today's show, I have two interviews for you. The first one will be Talking 2020, Joe Rogan and Platforming with Mike Figueredo of The Humanist Report, followed by Ricochet's Fight for Press Freedom with Ethan Cox and Gabrielle Brassad-Lacour of Ricochet.media. Check it out. Hey folks, we have a great interview for you today. We are uh, I'm joined by Mike Figueredo of The Humanist Report. Uh, Mike, how's it going? I'm doing well. How are you doing, David? I'm doing great. So uh, before we even get into it, I want to say that Mike was the first guy that ever interviewed me. I think I had like 10,000 subscribers when you interviewed me. It gave like a huge boost to my channel. So I'm glad to have you. Uh, uh, I'm glad to be able to repay it and have you on on my show to interview interview you. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Regardless, I think that you would have exploded if I had you on or not, because you just you do phenomenal content. And I, I think it, it shows people know that. So kudos to you. You're doing great. And you're one of my favorites. So oh, um, thank you good so job. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into this. So I want to. So today we're basically going to discuss the, the 2020 candidates uh, for the Democratic primary and also going to talk about uh, about platforming and, and Mike's debate with uh, Kyle Kalinske on that. But first, let's get to uh, 2020. So there are a lot of candidates uh, in this Democratic primary. <laughs> uh, it's kind of hard to talk about all of them, but there are a few, especially right now, that are in the news that uh, I want to touch on. So Joe Biden, what are your thoughts on Joe Biden? Did you expect him to run? And I mean, he's obviously running now, but what are your thoughts on how uh, how he's done so far and how do you think he'll do in, uh, in the primary? Yeah, you know... I did expect him to run, although he was waiting so long that I kind of had like this still hope inside of me that thinking maybe he won't run, but he's running. And the way that I view Joe Biden is he's kind of like the Hillary Clinton of 2020, where he's painfully out of touch. He doesn't actually talk to ordinary people. He just is talking to the elites. I mean, on his very first day, he held a fundraiser with a Comcast lobbyist. So that tells you pretty much everything you need to know about him. In terms yeah. of how he'll do during the primary, I mean, you can't deny that he's polling extremely well. He's surpassing Bernie in most polls, from what mm -hmm. I understand. Although I'm fully expecting him to face plan. And this is because everything he says, he manages to piss off somebody. Like, he <laughs> is so tone deaf, so out of touch, and I just can't see him sustaining this momentum. I kind mm -hmm. of... I'm thinking, and this is just speculation, that he'll kind of have the same problem that Hillary has when the more you hear from him, the less you like him. Um, and that's just my thoughts. Maybe it's me projecting because I personally can't stand Joe Biden. But the way that I kind of have been looking at this is people view Joe Biden nostalgically. Like everyone loves Obama. And they view the Obama days as giving Americans a lot of stability. There was not really any change. And to me, I view that as a bad thing. But a lot of people liked that there wasn't like a nonstop scandal every single day and just blatant stupidity like we see with Donald Trump. So I think a lot of people long for those days. But when they hear him speak, I think they're probably going to realize, yeah, we only like Joe Biden because we associated him with Obama, but he's nothing like Obama. There's no charm. There's no charisma. There's just an old, old out of touch dude who doesn't really know what normal Americans are uh, dealing with. So I suspect mm -hmm. he will face plant, but anything is possible, you know, in modern American politics, because I mean, yeah. Trump is president, so I'm not going to discount him. But um, I think he probably won't have any message that resonates. Yeah, so uh, I definitely agree with most of your analysis. I do have a small worry, though, just just based on name recognition alone, 
that it's going to carry him far, the way that it carried Hillary Clinton far. So at the time, mm-hmm. I mean, when Hillary's going up against Bernie, Bernie didn't have much name recognition at all. But now that um, Bernie does have that name recognition, I, I at least think there is a good chance that Bernie will win this primary because of that. But he still has this candidate beside him uh, in Biden where you have, I mean, just decades long uh, experience in politics, just to, being in the public eye in general. Do you do you worry at all that that name recognition is going to carry him farther than maybe he deserves to be? Absolutely, because name recognition can do wonders for a candidate's career. I mean, Donald Trump, the name recognition, I mean, we saw how powerful that was when he trumped, for lack of a better word, you know, the entire field, you know, 16 candidates. Joe Biden could have the same effect. Um, It's kind of why I think we saw Bernie Sanders get a boost towards the end of the primary, especially because Mm -hmm. everyone just kind of defaulted to Hillary Clinton. But as they learned more about Bernie Sanders, they thought, oh, I actually like the message that he has. And one thing that I think Democratic Party voters do that Republicans don't is they try to think like two or three steps ahead. So they wouldn't necessarily support Joe Biden because politically he's closer to them or ideologically rather he's closer to them. I think they would consider supporting him because they view him as the best bet against Donald Trump. And currently, right. when you look at head-to-head matchups, he's doing better than Bernie. I think that's probably going to change. But, I mean, they this is one of the reasons why they supported Hillary. They just thought, well, you know, we can't have a socialist go up against Donald Trump or a Republican. Right. Otherwise, we will lose. So they don't think, oh, well, this person is actually better ideologically. They just think, well, this person can beat that individual. And I'm kind of getting that sense based on just people who I know on Facebook, like friends and family. And it's a little bit soul crushing because people need to just vote who's better based on policy. And they're also not thinking about who can actually energize the base, which is something everyone misses in DC. Um, And apparently a lot of people, you know, just normal, the normies, uh, they miss that too. So I do worry. I, I wouldn't discount him. I'm not betting on him face planning, even though I think it's highly likely, but you know, you can't, dismiss Joe Biden. He could win. So let's go to Andrew Yang uh, next, because you actually interviewed uh, Yang on your channel. I watched it. It was a great interview. Uh, Tell me your impressions of of him uh, just based off your discussion with him and and based off his uh, his platform. Yeah. So two seemingly contradictory things happened. So at the same time, my support for him as a candidate decreased pretty substantially after the interview. Mm -hmm. But my respect for him actually went up. Because Andrew Yang was very straightforward. If he couldn't answer a question, um, he basically just admitted, well, you know, this is a flaw in UBI, for example, like with regard to Social Security and a discussion that we had about that. Yeah, that's right. So I, I, I didn't feel like he was pandering to me. And I think he knew that sometimes he would give an answer that I wouldn't like, but he still gave the answer that he felt was true. I totally disagree with him. But I do appreciate the honesty because, you know, if I asked anyone else that, I would have expected them to try to pander to me and bullshit, whereas Andrew Yang was just straightforward. But with that being said, um, the interview, I think, accomplished a lot because people don't ask candidates questions, pundits in mainstream media, they don't ask candidates questions and in a way that would let people assess how their policies directly affect them. And yeah. I think that that's really lacking because you could think about, you know, policies in the abstract. You can ask them the generic questions of how how are you going to pay for this? But unless you actually ask candidates how their policies in practice 
would affect people, you're not really doing anything to inform your audience. So my goal was to just really draw out very specific questions because we already know that Andrew Yang supports UBI. We already know the the basics of UBI. So I want to know how it would look in practice. And I think that Andrew Yang did do a good job at explaining how it would look in practice. And I just, I don't like how it would look in practice. Yeah. And I kind of alluded to that you. in the interview. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if UBI supplemented our, our existing social safety nets, I would absolutely love it. Andrew Yang may be closer to the top, but because it doesn't, the way he's funding this through a VAT tax, you know, that people on social security would also have to foot the bill for, it just yeah. wouldn't affect the people who I think need it the most. So yeah. I disagree with him, but I absolutely respect him for answering directly and not trying to bullshit me. Yeah, it, it's a very libertarian approach to to UBI. Is, is it seems what he's pushing, which is to me, it's a huge red flag. And actually, one mm-hmm. of the questions that I love that you asked him about was uh, strategy around healthcare. So it sounds like he doesn't really support Medicare for all. But you brought up the idea of well, if you want to actually achieve the healthcare that you want, then you should be pushing farther left so that you would have to uh, in compromise. If you have to compromise, you would compromise to a position that you would actually want. That's a question that these candidates never get asked is how you actually uh, push these policies forward, how you actually negotiate. And it's uh, an issue that Obama, I mean, Obama had those huge flaws when he came to trying to um, push for a public option because he came to the table essentially with the compromise. And because of that, Republicans fought him anyways. So, but, but he, but Obama was never asked about his failed strategy on that. And instead it was like, they treated him like he was already going too far left with with the public option or already going too far left with Obamacare. I mean, so that question, I just have to say, I love that you asked that question. And I, I, that's something that these candidates need to be, I think, pushed uh, more on in terms of uh, their strategy around how to actually enact these policies. Exactly. Because, and thank you for that. No, the reason why I want to know this is because you can take all of the correct policy positions and I could agree with you 100% ideologically, but if I don't think you actually are savvy enough to get these policies implemented, that's going to hurt you in my book. Like, you have to come to D.C., and expect that you will have a real plan on how to get these policies implemented because you're dealing with a ruthless Republican Party who's going to rip off your head and shit down your neck. Like, they're going (laughs) to tear you apart. Mm -hmm. So you need strategy. And more importantly, you need to know the details of your own policy because if you're not onto the details portion of a specific policy, then you're – like, I just can't believe you that you're going to get what you want to accomplish. So I Mm -hmm. kind of made this – this distinction on my show that the reason why Bernie Sanders is so good when it comes to Medicare for all and why he's the best by a mile and a half is because he's moved on to the details portion. Like he already decided on his policy and now he's explaining to people what it's going to look like. You're going to get a Medicare card, um, for example. But then other candidates, they're still kind of, oh, well, you know, maybe public option. Uh, Elizabeth Warren Mm -hmm. talks about there's many paths to Medicare for all. You should be moved on past that. You've got to be at the stage of this is how we're going to fight for it and this is how it's going to look when you get it. If you're not onto that stage, you're just you're not going to get anything accomplished because people don't know how to play politics in 2019 against Mitch McConnell. He's going to outmaneuver you. So you think ahead of him. And they're just not doing that. None of the candidates really are doing that, which is why Bernie is, I think, the only person who kind of gets it and who has mm-hmm. a chance to get his agenda implemented, because it's not just regular legislative 
you know, politics as usual. He's actually wanting people to get out and protest in every major city to put pressure on line makers because you're not going to be able to get anything accomplished if you just do the standard, you know, propose a bill, debate it. And that's not going to work. You have to do more unless, you know, you're going to try to get money out of politics first. But which is which you, is an issue just, that I feel like these candidates are not talking about enough. I mean, money in yeah. politics is a huge issue that I expect Bernie to say a little more about that, and it's it's kind of uh, it's unfortunate he's been he's been quiet about that because how do you yep. essentially how do you enact your platform if you still have money influencing all these politicians in Congress? Yeah, yeah, it's it's why you know I struggle. Like if I were elected president, what would I do? Would I try to stop the crises first? Like would I address Medicare for all and climate change or would I try to go for money in politics first, which will make it a lot easier to get that agenda yeah. done? It's difficult. Like you're faced with the most difficult situation ever if you're elected and you're truly progressive because it's easy to get to DC with all of these big ideas. But once you actually start governing in practice, there's going to be a lot of lobbyists in your ear. There's going to be experts who are going to advise you on the strategy. So you can get sidetracked so easily that unless you already have these details fleshed out in your mind, you're going to get ripped apart and you're going to be Obama 2.0. Yeah. Um, so that's why I think that we need to be looking at these things and vetting these candidates more properly, I think. like. I, yeah. The mainstream media interviews, I don't have to tell you, they're garbage with the candidates. It's always, how are yeah. you going to pay for this? Or are you going too far left? It's like, talk about yeah. governance. They're always pushing them from the right. Like, there's yeah. the questioning is never from the left, it's always from the right. But in, in their minds, they're questioning like uh, based on being neutral or, or being objective. But in reality, no, the questions are always framed from the right. So because you frame the whole conversation from a right wing perspective, like, how do you pay for this? Then just based on the questions alone, you you influence how people feel about certain issues and having people uh, like you out there actually asking questions from the left, I think challenges these candidates to really think about these policies differently. Yeah. Yeah. It, I want to know what they're going to do as president. Like we're past the pitch. You've made your pitch. Yeah. Now, what's this going to look like in practice? And that's what I hope to see more of, and I hope that more candidates will come on my show. I've invited a lot of candidates on my show, and mm -hmm. I've heard some responses back, but once they look into me, they hear from them. Like Elizabeth Warren's team was pretty much in contact with me for a while, and I was trying to get her on the show. Um, but then I just, you know, they started ghosting me because I, I can't like withhold criticism to court someone. Like I'm not going to kiss ass for access. That's not the way that I roll. It's I'm going to be fair as fair as I possibly can. I'm going to give you the time to explain yourself. And if you can't convince me, you can't convince me. But either way, my questions will be very different than mainstream media. And if you don't want to be challenged, then have fun against Trump because, yeah. you know, you need to be able to be battle tested you know as they said with hillary clinton and how she was like i'm trying to help you and even if you think that my questioning is you know unfair or too hard or it's too specific like why do we need to talk about governing when i'm just still applying for the job then still that'll help you improve because you're going to be thinking about this differently thinking about yeah. it in a way that you hadn't thought about it previously and it's not like my like i'm so brilliant like i'm coming up with these questions these are just basic questions that normal people want to know like if yeah. you're someone who's listening to the pitch medicare for all your number one question is how is this going to affect me and this is what they need to explain what will this look like in practice yeah absolutely um so only a few more candidates here i want to touch on uh kamala harris now kamala harris i have considered her sort of the the person that would last in the primary against Bernie Sanders now that Biden's in honestly I think Biden's going to do better than than uh 
maybe people initially think simply because of his name recognition. But what do you think uh, Kamala Harris's chances are and her as a candidate just uh, overall? Yeah, so for me, the way that I view Kamala is she's the best of the worst. Yeah. Um, out of all the corporate Democrats, if I were forced to pick one, it would be Kamala because she's the most charismatic. She's the most, I think, politically savvy. And she actually has good answers to some questions. Like I really liked how she said, you know, about Medicare for all. Don't let the private insurance companies dupe you into doing their bidding for them. That was yeah. absolutely that was brilliant. a great answer. Yeah. I, she doesn't really know the specifics about the bill that she co-sponsored. That yeah. was apparent to me. But nonetheless, you know, mm -hmm. she's she's sticking to her guns. Um, so I think that if anyone is going to make a run against Bernie from, you know, the corporate Democrat, you know, center or the establishment, I hope it's her. I think it's going to be between her and Biden, honestly, um, because Biden, like you said, the name recognition is such a powerful thing mm -hmm. that. I don't know that anyone else can even come close to Biden unless he really starts tanking. And he's already getting a lot of kind of bad press with the Anita Hill. Um, yeah, right. He came out or there was a story actually from CNN, I think like a week and a half ago that talked about how he was against segregation, but he kind of was seeking support from segregationists in mm -hmm. order to stop blessing. So, I mean, there's there's bad press stories. So if corporate media is kind of iffy about you. You're going to have a bad time. But with that being yeah. said, I don't know. It's tough. So my first guess would be Joe Biden will probably be one of the last people in the race, just looking at money alone. Mm -hmm. But if I had to choose anyone else, I'd say Kamala probably because she really is the one that knows what to say to not completely piss off progressives. Like I was genuinely impressed with her town hall. Um, yeah. I think she knows what she has to say to win. She acknowledges that you need to win over progressives but she also knows she's walking a fine line between courting progressives and not pissing off the establishment you know and not pissing off the industries that could fund her opponent you know in the event she wins the nomination so mm -hmm. kamala is someone who impresses me do i support her no but she's still just from a raw like political perspective i think she is a good candidate yeah uh now, let's touch on Pete Buttigieg briefly. Uh, I don't spend too much time on him because I think he's just a flash in the pan. I uh, I feel like he's the flavor of the month almost in, in a way. And the media is, I think, going to move, move back to Kamala Harris after after they have their fling with Pete Buttigieg. But um, what are your feelings about him? Because he, it's hard to pin him down. And that's the reason I don't like him. Because we, you don't really know what he's really about. And I think that alone kind of kind of tells you what he is about. But what are your thoughts on Pete Buttigieg? Yeah, I kind of agree with you. He's all over the place. Um, yeah. He is clearly an articulate speaker. And at first, I was actually impressed. Like the first video of the 2020 cycle um, I did talking about him, I was praising him because he talked about Medicare for all in a really unique way. He said, actually, you know, we're not far leftist for supporting Medicare for all. You know, this is the compromise between NHS and a for-profit private system. Mm -hmm. So I thought, wow, that's a really, you know, that's a brilliant way to frame this because that's actually true. But as he starts talking more and more, you see that there's there's nothing there. Like there's there's no there there. He's vacuous. He doesn't support progressive policy positions. He's against free college. He's against Medicare for all. But he's trying to steal the word Medicare and attach it to his public option. Um, that's obviously disingenuous. And I just feel like at this day and age, if he were to go up against Donald Trump, I don't know that he can win because yeah. there's 
there's just platitudes. I call him platitude Pete or pretentious Pete because <laughs> he doesn't yeah. have anything specific. Like, yeah. talk about your damn policies, dude. What are you doing? Like, yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's end end on the two most progressive candidates in the race: uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. So, Elizabeth Warren, uh, I've liked her a lot. Uh, I think she's yeah. putting out solid policy uh, uh, proposals. She is. Um, she was actually going after Biden recently, which was to me surprising. I did not expect her to be on the offensive, so I'm glad that she's doing that. With that mm -hmm. said, I don't know why she's so flaky on Medicare for all. I mean, why can't she just be as tough as Bernie is on the issue? It's it seems it's a huge red flag. It just doesn't make any sense. She's progressive on all these positions, and then you get to Medicare for all, and actually her foreign policy as well. We haven't really uh, dived into that too much, so mm -hmm. it's not all that clear where she sits on on those issues. But um, what are your thoughts on Elizabeth Warren? Yeah, same exact thoughts as you. I don't get it. I don't get why she's wishy-washy on Medicare for All. Um, in one of the interviews she did, maybe it was her first town hall actually with CNN, she looked like she was running away from the word Medicare for All because like when Jake yeah. Tapper followed up about a question when it comes to healthcare, she would say everything but Medicare for All because I, actually I don't remember if it was Jake Tapper, but anyways, they asked – um, you know, you co-sponsored Medicare for all. So maybe they were, I can't remember exactly what he was asking her, but then she's like, oh, well, I co-sponsored this, the public option and lowering the yeah. age of Medicare to 55. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, yeah, like wh why? I mean, when, when the policy is, is at 70% support, I mean, I don't know why she's running away from it. It's, it's incredibly popular. It's, it's even popular with, with, uh, uh, conservative, uh, voters. So yeah, it's, it doesn't make any sense to me, but I, I want to get to um, Bernie now, since I mean it's all about Bernie. Uh, yep. <laughs> what are your What are your thoughts on on Bernie, and do you think he he will? Uh, I mean, if you're going to make a prediction now, what do you think his shot is at at winning the nomination? Um, I'm going to say he has a 51 percent chance at winning the nomination, and I'll add the caveat that I am horrible at predictions, so don't. <laughs> so um, I hope that take, means 85 <laughs> percent. Yeah, don't put any stock into what I say if I'm yeah. making a prediction. But no, I think he has a great shot. Um, the one thing this time around that I'm noticing about Bernie Sanders is that he's become a little bit more calculative, um, if that makes sense. Like he didn't speak out about the Julian Assange thing. His his, you know, answer on Venezuela has been a little bit eh. And I know that Bernie knows better, but I think that what he's trying to do is avoid any scandals. He's he knows he's navigating, you know, through a field of landmines. Like anything he can do can be flipped around and turned into a scandal. So I get it. But at the same time, part of his appeal is not giving a shit about what people say about him. Um, but just in terms of his success rate, um, or the the win. And I think that going up against Donald Trump, he really is the best bet to beat Donald Trump out of everyone because he really is the one candidate who I think can win back the Rust Belt and win over the voters that Donald Trump stole from uh, Hillary. Or steal is probably not the great word, but I mean voters that you would have assumed would have flocked to the Democratic Party candidate. Trump won him over. I think Bernie can win him back. Um, so I think that he can win. I will say this, though. Anyone who goes up against Donald Trump will have a more difficult time than in 2016 because Donald Trump is an incumbent now. He has that incumbent advantage. And even if it's Donald Trump, um, there's always the question of do I want to change what's going on right now if I don't necessarily know what to expect? And that could be, you know, a problem for any candidate. Well, you know, I don't know if I should go with Kamala because I know what to expect with Donald Trump, but I don't know what to expect with Kamala. And the same could be true with Bernie. So I think that 
it's really it's going to be tough and it's not just going to be you know an easy ride as easy as it would have been in 2016 but i think that if anybody is going to make a run at the white house it's going to be bernie um and i hope he does in fact become the nominee because if there's anyone else going up against trump i'm going to start worrying like i love elizabeth warren you know in spite of my issues but i don't think that she could take on donald trump I, I just picture her trying to play on his level, responding to every single criticism when you mm -hmm. have to be able to brush all of that aside and just focus on policy. I think Bernie yeah. can do that. I don't think Biden can do that. I don't think Elizabeth Warren could do that. Um, and it, it's tough, like psychologically, if somebody insults yeah. you, you want to respond, but you can't do that because you have to understand that this is no longer, you know, 1990s style of politics where the most rehearsed, you know, well-spoken person is going to win. Like you need to prove to people you're going to help them. Otherwise, they're going to stay home. Yeah. And even looking past the election, I think um, Bernie's the only one that's really challenging the system. I mean, he's the one yeah. that talks about, you know, corporate power. He calls out corporations directly. He actually names them. This is somebody that I think is is clearly challenging the established power and is willing yeah. to take them on. And I think he's the only one that's really doing that. But um, And they're afraid of him, actually. I don't yeah. know if you saw the article, David, about health insurers expanding Medicare benefits because Bernie Sanders keeps threatening them. Like, mm. they're afraid because he's an existential threat. So that's why, yeah. like, if we don't want a president, Ted Nugent or Louis Gomer in like eight years, we actually need to not have another neoliberal. Like we need someone who's going to try to change the system at least a little bit or get us on the trajectory of changing the system. Yeah. And I think Bernie's ability to, to do that uh, in America would also have an effect worldwide as well. And, you know, yeah. I know Canada needs a, a boost like that. Uh, the UK needs a boost like that worldwide. We, we really need somebody that is... Uh, a strong left winger in a real position of power in a massive country like the U.S. So I, I hope Bernie takes it, and if he wins a nomination, I think he'll win the election. But um, I think so. let's get to platforming. So you had this uh, this great debate with Kyle Kalinske uh, on uh, Progressive uh, Voices Channel, and this was a great debate. Uh, there were times where I was agreeing with uh, uh, Kyle, but most time I was honestly agreeing with you. Um, what are your thoughts on? on how, I guess, I mean, just focusing on Joe Rogan for a second, on how Joe Rogan uh, approaches platforming these sorts of individuals like a Jordan Peterson or like a Ben Shapiro. Uh, what are your thoughts on on how he platforms? And um, do you think he challenges these his guests enough? Or what do you think the responsibility really is for someone like Joe Rogan, who isn't all that politically engaged, but wants to be able to have these conversations? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's kind of hard to say, um, which is why I don't think it's necessarily a black or white issue, because he does challenge sometimes. Like, mm -hmm. I did a segment talking about how he challenged Candace Owens on climate change. Yeah. But, you know, for someone like Jordan Peterson, it's a little bit more tricky because he has a PhD. He is seemingly legitimate. So maybe Joe Rogan feels a little bit like he doesn't have to be as ready to challenge him, mm -hmm. you know, so... It's hard to say what I would like to see from Joe Rogan is just, I guess, his recognition that if he brings on somebody that he needs to understand how they may or may not be harmful to people, either directly or indirectly. Like I brought up the, you know, Jordan Peterson example where he basically came to prominence because he was lying about the Canadian bill, C-16, you know, and yeah. he made it seem like transgender people, you know, if you misgender them, you're going to go to jail. 
when yeah. zero and people no one's, have been locked yeah, up. No one's gone to jail. I mean, I'm Not in Canada. That's co that Jordan Peterson got got famous off of a complete lie. I mean, that's yeah. just what happened. And uh, I mean, look, when it comes to Peterson, I think if you go, if you like his self help stuff, whatever. Like if yeah. that helps you, it, it doesn't bother me. But it's when he gets into issues that he is not educated on. I mean, when <laughs> Peterson's talking about whether it's politics or left right issues or or uh, identity politics, I mean, he he really isn't all that educated on this stuff. And simply because he has a, a PhD in a certain area, I think it it kind of blinds some people to um, just believing Peterson on anything he says, when really, yeah. we should be questioning people on what they actually know or don't know, regardless of of, uh, of their education. So if, if, if you have someone on your show, especially, I mean, this is kind of what bothers me is Rogan has these people on before they are really huge. And mm -hmm. he, he like, allows them to then, it, I mean, he platforms them in a way where they then get famous because of it. Now, yeah. It's less of an issue if he actually challenges them uh, well. And he has in some cases, you mentioned Candace Owens. Uh, I know uh, when he had Stefan Molyneux on his show, he did challenge him on some of the things that, that Molyneux did. So mm -hmm. he has great moments like that. But I think that's what's so disappointing is because I think we know that Rogan could be so much better. <laughs> that it's kind of frustrating to have this guy who is uh, so famous and has his massive podcast platforming these individuals. And at the same time, does not have on enough left-wing uh, voices and not even just uh, commentators, but people like Richard Wolff, like a, a Marxist, yeah. uh, have an actual Marxist on your show to discuss these issues. If you're going to have Jordan Peterson on talking about uh, neo-Marxists and cultural Marxism and just, you know, spreading BS about a topic he knows nothing about, have an actual Marxist on the show and have an actual left-wing intellectual on the show and talk about these issues in, in, a, in a, the same kind of depth that you talk to right-wingers uh, 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 with. So, yeah. It's... Yeah, that would help, I feel like. If, if he brought mm -hmm. on more left-wingers, I would not be as angry that he didn't challenge Jordan Peterson because there's, you know, that pushback. But for the most part, it's just right-wingers who goes on his show. And maybe draw the line at people who are completely fucking crazy. Like, um, <laughs> don't use your credibility to help someone like Alex Jones. Like, don't go on his show. I mean, you could do whatever you want to do, but understand that, you know, you're going to get pushback for that because yeah. if you're trying to legitimize people who are just batshit fucking crazy like or just Alex frauds. Jones. Like you have yeah. someone like Candace Owens on who she's just she's paid to to Straight push propaganda. Up. I mean that's her job. So you cannot have people on that are just propagandists regardless of what side of the political spectrum they're on. Have people yeah. on that are actual intellectuals or actual political commentators that aren't propped up by, you know, billionaire money and wouldn't exist without that. So I think that's what really bothers me about about that. But um I, I mm -hmm. hope Rogan gets a little better on that. I will say uh Kyle changed my mind on on one uh issue and that's on the issue of uh of fox news mm -hmm. i forget the actual context of the question or the actual discussion but i think it was about uh glenn greenwald uh, appearing on on fox news or, or, or basically having any left winger on fox news i think it's perfectly fine if they are willing to challenge the bs that that comes at them so mm -hmm. uh glenn greenwald has done that in some interviews and I think it's it's okay uh, in terms of the the interviews that I've seen. I think Glenn has actually uh, carried himself well in terms of challenging Fox News in certain areas while also pushing a, a left wing perspective. Um, in terms of Bernie Sanders, I, I see no downside at all to having Bernie Sanders on Fox News. Uh, what are your thoughts on on that sort of uh, thing? Uh, ha having a left winger on Fox News to try and uh, offer a new perspective that many Fox News viewers don't uh, see usually. 
Yeah. Um, the, the thing that Kyle said that really um, stuck out to me the most and resonated the most with me is this idea that you can't like legitimize a news program that's already yeah. viewed as legitimate. Like they're already exactly. legitimate. Yeah. And I know that this is something that you've mentioned as well. And it was yeah. such a powerful argument because it's true. So by denying yourself access to that platform, you're making sure that our progressive message doesn't penetrate a different echo chamber. And I think that that's what this is about. Like you and I, we can go back and forth and agree on every single issue basically, but unless we are convincing more people to come into the fold, then what are we doing? Like, what's the yeah, point? You know what I mean? Exactly. So I, I, I think that he really did move me on this particular issue. I still mostly don't fully agree with the Joe Rogan thing, although our disagreements weren't as big as our initial like um, yeah. blow up on Twitter. Yeah. But, um, that the Fox News, I mean, I think he made a phenomenal point that mm -hmm. like for one politician should absolutely go on. And now I'm not even torn. I think the DNC should allow Fox News to host a debate. And we already know what to expect from Fox News. You know, they're they're problematic. They're going to be biased. But at the same time, so is CNN. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I think that the, yeah. the town hall with CNN was worse than the Fox yeah, News one. Yeah, I agree. I was going to say that. I completely agree. The, the Fox News one was, they were like layup questions almost in some cases. <laughs> Whereas yeah. CNN, they were, they were adversarial. The whole time they were going after Bernie Sanders. So, yeah, there's definitely, mm -hmm. the, there is this this uh almost unawareness that cnn in, in terms of discussing progressive issues is as bad or in some uh, cases worse than fox news because cnn is seen as more legitimate so if they are crit uh, critiquing something like uh medicare for all in a dishonest way it has more weight to it than if fox news is doing it absolutely absolutely and that's why i really don't think that you should not go on fox news now I think that ContraPoints made a really good point about this in an interview that she did with uh, David Pakman, I think it was. And she said, look, some people just don't have the personalities to push back. Like, yeah. if you're not going to be able to be assertive enough and aggressive enough to really push back forcefully, then maybe you shouldn't go on Fox News if you're just going to be mm -hmm. passive, if you're going to do a Rubin-style, you know, interview on Fox <laughs> News. Like, so, I mean, it, it kind of is dependent on the person. Mm -hmm. Totally. But for the most part, if you can get the message to a right-wing audience, I think you should do yeah. that. And really, I think that the Kyle Kalinske interview on Fox News, the Katie Halper interview on Fox News about Ilhan Omar, those oh, yeah. are basically Katie Halper the was templates. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah those are the templates that you got to follow. You just push mm -hmm. back. You never sacrifice your principles. And if you can get them to agree with you on certain things, um, great. But for the most part, as long as you're penetrating their echo chamber, I think that that's really valuable. And it may not necessarily have a short-term payoff, but long-term, I think potentially um, you can maybe just plant that seed in someone's mind where, you know, you, you that resonated and then years down the line that stuck with them. You know, like, like the point that Kyle made that stuck with us, like about the legitimization that they're already yeah. legitimate, you know, and that really blossomed into me like thinking, okay, I think we should talk to more people who we wouldn't necessarily talk with. And because yeah. of that was such a powerful line, now it's kind of influenced my own actions. Like I'm actually mm -hmm. gonna have Peter Dow on my program on Wednesday. Oh talk really? To someone who, oh, I'm yeah, looking forward yeah. to that. Nice. I'm gonna be doing my very first debate on the drunken peasants. And oh, I won't, wow. I'll tell you off air who it is because okay. it's, it's, I don't know if it's confirmed yet, <laughs> yeah. but you know, I'm, it's, I'm realizing that I don't just wanna tell progressives the same thing I've been talking about. Like I genuinely yeah. want to convince more people. Now, I don't know if I'm going to be successful. Maybe it's going to be an epic disaster. Maybe I'm not the right person, you know, <laughs> because I'm always a little bit more, um, let's just say, I, I think that Kyle is probably more persuasive than I am because I, I genuinely hate right wingers. And I think they probably <laughs> sense that in my voice. Um, so maybe I'm not the right person, but I think that it's worth an effort of trying to get them to understand that, yeah. you know, you can't, 
you can't continuously straw man us if I told you my argument and what my beliefs are. So you at least have to address, you know, my criticisms directly for what they are, not what you think they are. So that's, you know, that's that's what I'll say about that. I, I think it's important to really look at this issue of platforming because it really is. It's not black and white. It's tough. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's hard. And when it comes to reaching new audiences, too, this is why I I mean, I get these comments all the time whenever I cover a clip from The View. People are asking me, why are you covering The View? Why are you covering The View? The View has millions of viewers, people that yeah. aren't educated on politics or are misinformed on politics because of people like Meghan McCain. So when I cover those kinds of clips, it's because it brings in a new audience. It brings in people uh, to a new left wing perspective that they aren't used to hearing on television. So that's the kind of persuasiveness. Like it's not even just about attracting right wingers. It's also attracting people who are apolitical. So if you're able yeah. to hit on those kinds of stories where people aren't educated on politics, but you can get them in with a Meghan McCain clip and then educate them on on various issues that like say she's wrong about something, which she is all the time. You can educate <laughs> them on why she is wrong. And in the process, you're actually educating people on real issues. And I think that's that's a, a, a powerful way to do it separate from just, you know, going after uh, the right wing. That's that's such a good point. Um, and that's part of the reason why I try to cover those types of things as well, because there are a lot of people who are apathetic. Like, what is it like almost half of Amer- uh, half of Americans don't vote? Like, I don't yeah, know how much exactly. it's like. So it's like if you can get those people at a time when they're developing their political views, that's when you're going to be the most um, persuasive. It's it's kind of like this idea that like when you are younger, you can learn a language better before the age of like five or something like you can learn a second language easier. But as you get mm-hmm. older, it becomes more difficult. And I kind of think the same is true for politics. Like as you're developing your political opinion, like that's the time when you get those people. You know, that's exactly. the time when you draw them in and just focusing on a simple clip from the view. Um, I think that that could really be substantial because they're maybe seeking out, you know, something that Meghan McCain said that there's all this fuss about that was stupid. And, you know, I would rather her or he come across a rational national video than just the raw view clip because they're going to get more context. They're going to get the fact checking that wouldn't necessarily always be there on the view. So I think Mm -hmm. it's it is important. Yep. So, uh, Mike Figueredo, thanks for joining me. Where can people find your uh, your channel and uh, just you in general online? Yeah, you can find everything at humanistreport.com. There you go. All right, Mike, thanks for joining me. Thanks, man. It's been a blast. Hey, everyone. We have a great interview for you today. I'm joined now by Ethan Cox and Gabrielle Brassard-Lacour of uh, Ricochet.media. Ethan and Gabrielle, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you. you. So um, before we get to uh, the fight that you're about to have in, uh, in court, why don't you give me some examples of uh, Ricochet's work, including investigative pieces and the kind of stories that you've broken? Take it away, Gab. <laughs> Follow up. Uh, well, as you know, we have, uh, we're a bilingual outlet, so we have uh, French and English content. On the French side, uh, one of the first stories that we broke and that was uh, that other outlets talked about a lot is the fact that uh, Canada was selling um, arms to um, uh, Arabic Saudi, I don't know, Arabic Saudi. So that was uh, the Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Um so that was the first uh, big story that we broke four years ago and uh, a lot of other outlets uh, talked about it. Mm-hmm. Uh more recently we uh, during the last uh, provincial um uh, campaign election campaign in Quebec we uh, uh, broke a story about the um, the 
the fact that uh, the Economic Institute of Montreal is really uh, uh, close to some uh, uh, oil uh, lobbying, and that explains why they have a really uh, clim climatic uh, sceptical positions uh, in the public space. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was a big story that we broke too. And uh, otherwise, uh, yeah, we do uh, other stuff. We won a, a prize for our first uh, French series of podcasts. So uh, yeah, it's the kind of work we do. You're also up for, uh, you're a finalist in the Canadian Association of Journalists Annual Awards as well, right? Yeah, that's right. That's uh, on on the English side, Gab, uh, what she's mentioning there with the Saudi arms deal was actually uh, that we were the first outlet on that story a year before the Globe covered it uh, in our French edition. Uh, on the English side, uh, recently we, we did an investigation last year into uh, a white supremacist web store uh, that was run by a number of uh, active members of the Canadian forces as well as people that were very well connected to, to both the, the Federal Conservative Party and the uh, UCP in Alberta. That's the, the story that we're, uh, we're a finalist for Canadian Association of Journalists Award for this year. Um, just uh, just about a month ago, we uh, we broke another really labor intensive investigation into how uh, uh, interference by a liberal MP uh, may have scuttled uh, an investigation into a uh, into a Canadian multinational group of companies. Um, so, you know, following up on SNC, more more political interference on that level. Um, we, uh, we have relatively low capacity compared to a lot of outlets, but we've been able to punch above our weight and break a lot of, a lot of big stories that have been covered in turn by a lot of other media outlets, gotten a lot of attention. Um, as Gab was mentioning, we also have a really active podcast network that has won awards in both English and French, um, which is, you know, becoming probably one of the largest left-wing podcast networks in the country. Um, and, and in addition to the, to the investigative journalism that we do, uh, we also try to provide a, a platform for uh, opinion content that comes from a different perspective. There's very much a, a consensus around the status quo when it comes to the opinion pages of major newspapers and mainstream media outlets in Canada. And so we try and provide a, a platform for debates on the left. Uh, about what direction uh, the country and, and various political parties and movements should be taking. Um, you know, the, the, the other thing that's important to know about our, our website is uh, we're, we're crowdfunded. So our funding comes from individual donors who are our readers. Um, over 70% of our audience is under 40 and over 80% of our audience comes from social media. Uh, so we're a media outlet that's really trying to respond to the challenges of, of journalism in the 21st century both in terms of developing a, a sustainable financial model that doesn't rely on ads, but relies on the support of readers, uh, and also uh, in terms of, of trying to take a different editorial position. We're exactly like any other media outlet. The difference is that they all have editorial positions that largely support the status quo, yeah. or we try to have an editorial position that challenges the status quo. Yeah, I will say there definitely is a lack of uh, Canadian media outlets that challenge the status quo, and Ricochet... Uh, are one of the leaders uh, definitely on on that which brings us to uh next month so ricochet is going to court to fight for press freedom so can you give me a, a breakdown of what led to that point and also uh, ultimately what the case is about so it's, uh, it's been uh, on our, over our head uh, for about three years now. We uh, published um, a satirical piece uh, in 2016 uh, by one of our bloggers. Uh, 
uh, on Richard Martineau, which is uh, who's a really famous uh, columnist, uh, really uh, right oriented, and uh, so we did an humoristic. Um, a piece on him that was a false uh, arbitrary uh, and apparently he didn't take it too well so uh, about eight months after we published the piece uh, without any uh, previous notice we received a, a lawsuit uh, in the superior court uh, so he's asking uh, us um, 350,000 bucks uh, for defamation and, and personal damages um, so we, at the time, we didn't have any lawyers on, on our backs. Uh, we didn't have any money to support this defense. So we did another crowdfunding that was really successful. The public opinion was was really responsive on that crowdfunding, and, and really they they supported us pretty well. Um, but it takes time, like every uh, uh, court thing. So we've been just waiting on the the trial date. And we had that date a year and a half ago, last February, and uh, it's finally coming. Um, so yeah, where we are, we are going to trial uh, uh, on May 15. The, the trial starts. It's supposed to last about four or five days. Um, so yeah, that's basically what what led to to that to that point. And just to just to jump in for for viewers yep. in in the rest of Canada and in the states. Uh, Martineau is a is a ubiquitously known figure in Quebec, um, very much someone that people love to hate. Uh, he's a provocateur, and so his his whole shtick is to be as provocative and offensive as possible. And whenever he's criticized for it, he defends himself on the basis of free speech. So he's what you might call a free speech warrior. And I think we see a lot of these type of commentators in the rest of Canada and yeah. in the United States. And I think a trend we're starting to see uh, with these people who, who suggest that they are all about free speech is that that free speech is only for them mm -hmm. and not for anyone who would dare to criticize them. And if you actually use your free speech to criticize them, then they're going to do everything in their power to use their money and their, and their influence to shut you down. Um, so I think there are a lot of parallels in this case to, to the Peter Thiel and Gawker case. Peter Thiel had a much better case against Gawker than yeah. Richard Martineau has against us. But it's the same sort of idea where somebody is, is incensed that they would be targeted by something that is perfectly legitimate content for a media outlet to publish and thinks they can use their power and their influence and their money uh, to punish people for having the, the temerity to satirize them, to, mm -hmm. to, to, to treat them like the public figures that they are and hold them to account for their statements. Uh, you know, our, our lawyers would not be happy if we were to get too much into characterizing Richard Martineau. So I'll, I'll leave it to your, to your viewers to do their own Googling. Um, but he, he is, uh, you know, his, his statements on Muslims in particular, on transgender people, on, on a variety of, of socially marginalized groups are, are, are extreme, are, are upsetting, have certainly been characterized by many people as hateful. Um, and so, you know, what the author of this piece in question tried to do was to satirize that extremism. And, and it's, it's a piece that falls squarely within the bounds of fair comment. It never should have ended up in court. And the fact that it has is, uh, is really, I think, a, a worrying sign for a trend that is much broader than this case of trying to shut down, intimidate, 
bully media outlets into refraining from from criticizing public figures. And it works. I mean, yeah. you know, for the yeah. last three years, while this lawsuit has hung over our heads, we certainly haven't been uh, aggressive in challenging Richard Martineau because anything we say could, you know, be used against us in court. Um, so even when you're when you're willing to go to court, even when you're willing to fight and you're you're completely unwilling to fold in the face of this type of intimidation, it still has an impact and it has a, a real chilling effect on on press freedom. And, you know, nobody should be more subject to satire, to criticism than somebody who is one of the largest media figures in a province like Quebec as a major platform in newspapers, on radio, and on television, um, they should absolutely be subject to criticism. And that's what this lawsuit is about, is whether we have the right to criticize Richard Martineau in the same way, and in fact in gentler terms, than Richard Martineau turns around and criticizes so many others that don't have the platform that he has. So discuss the the potential threat here to press freedom but let's say he, he wins the case what ultimately would be the the impact on on the press in Canada uh, well on Canada I don't exactly know but on us I mean the the issue for us is our all survival I mean if we lose and we are accountable for the money yes that and he really knows that we don't have that money uh, our really only option is to shut down. So we put the key in the, the door and we close down. That that's that's the the main the main issue. And uh, on a broader uh, aspect, uh, yeah, for um, for free uh, speech, it's uh, it's gonna create a a, a very uh, um, a very important uh, precedent. I don't know how mm -hmm. to say that uh, uh, because uh, it means that someone like Richard Marceau and the, the empire he works in, which is Quebecois, was who owns like 40% of the media in Quebec, uh, can shut down uh, any media that criticizes their their star or, or people like, like Marceau. So this will be really, really, uh, it will endanger all the the, the free speech. Uh, I think. Yeah, in terms of the precedent that, that risks being set, if, if Martineau were to win, then it would establish a precedent that would, I think, prevent media outlets from engaging in criticism, engaging in satire of powerful and litigious right-wing figures who, who whip up fear and consternation about, you know, Muslims and, and minorities. And that's the exact opposite of what we need in our media right now. People that are that are making money, making clicks, making votes off of, you know, exploiting people's fear, uh, exploiting people's uh, ignorance or unawareness of, of, of what Muslims are like, what people that they're not familiar with are like. Those people need to be challenged. Um, so, you know, we again, this this case needs to be put in a broader context. Uh, in Quebec of late, Eric Duhaime, who's uh, a shock radio uh, host on, on Radio X, uh, which is, you know, a similar sort of political orientation radio station in Quebec, recently sent a, a mise en demeure to uh, a member of the National Assembly for having criticized things that were said on his radio show. 
Um, we also saw uh, a mise en demeure sent to Radio Canada, which is the French CBC, uh, because uh, a black woman who is a columnist for Le Devoir went on television and cited specific examples of racism on certain Quebec radio stations. So even for going on television and, and quoting specific examples, you're, you're getting threatened with being sued. Um, so there's, there's a serious chilling effect that's happening, and we're seeing it in the rest of Canada as well. Um, Michael Buckard, a, a freelance writer, was recently uh, sued by the president of a free speech club at an Ontario university for criticizing him. Uh, I think a lot of people are familiar with the Ben Kush case, the vice reporter who went all the way to the Supreme Court and was ordered yeah. to turn over information on one of his sources, which is a serious threat to press freedom. I think a lot of people are also familiar with the Justin Brake case, who had to go all the way to the Court of Appeal to defend uh, himself against charges that were laid against him for covering a protest, for being, you know, violating an injunction against trespassing as a working journalist in order to follow the, the people who were protesting that he was covering. Um, so we're seeing a trend in Quebec and in Canada to use the courts to try and shut down um, criticism, to try and shut down coverage that, that people don't want to see. And, and the real issue there is the precedent that is set legally is a problem, but the real issue is the chilling effect that it then has. Because editors and journalists working in newsrooms across the country see these cases and they follow them and they factor into their decision the next time they decide whether to publish something that is going to anger someone who is rich and powerful and well-connected. And so the outcome of this case, I think, is critically important. If, if Martineau loses, then the emperor has no clothes. And I think that that will empower journalists and editors to, to be more aggressive, to, to do their job with less fear and to challenge powerful figures. And by the same token, if, if we lose, then I think that's going to have a significant chilling impact for a number of years on that kind of work. Because if you're a journalist and an editor and you publish you know, hundreds of pieces a year, do you want to put all that at risk to criticize someone powerful or do you maybe want to let them slide? Uh, in order to protect the other work you're doing. Um, so that's that's really, I think, what's at stake here. Yeah, that's a great point. It's, it's not even just about the legal precedent, but also the cultural uh, uh, precedent that it sets on, on the press and their ability in terms of their feeling to be able to actually challenge the status quo, which is, I mean, we need more outlets like Ricochet that, that are willing to challenge the status quo. And I think that if you are able to win this case, and I, and I think you will, um, that will, that will free people up. Uh, to be more willing to actually uh, challenge those that are in power. So um, before we go here, uh, tell us again where people can go to uh, support Ricochet in, uh, in this fight and just uh, overall. Sure. Well, people should visit our website, ricochet.media. Uh, we recently published an editorial in both French and English. We're one of the only media outlets in Canada, apart from the CBC, that has distinct French and English editions, so yeah. you can read it in both languages. Um, but the most important thing that people can do to support us is to become a, a member of Ricochet. As, as Gabrielle was mentioning, back in 2016 when we announced this, we did a crowdfunder and we were able to raise over $50,000 to support our legal defense. We've got a great team of lawyers that have been working for us, uh, donating a, a huge amount of their time to this case. Um, so we're prepared to go to court in May. Uh, we have the resources that we need to mount a defense and we're feeling confident about our ability to win. Um, but what we really need is we need support for this model of journalism. And we see now in the world that the, the old model of journalism, which is advertising supported 
corporate-owned media outlets is failing. They're like dinosaurs, dinosaurs stalking the, the media landscape. Advertising-supported media just doesn't work. So we're going to get one of two outcomes out of what's happening right now. We're either going to get media that we don't have to pay for that serves the interests of whoever is paying for it. Uh, and we already see more and more sponsored content, advertorials. We're going to see more and more of this type of thing where even where it's not obvious, the news that you're consuming and you're reading is designed to serve a particular corporate interest. Mm -hmm. uh, or we're going to reach into our own pockets. And we're going to pay for public interest media that tells the truth and that serves no no higher master than the readers. And that's what we're trying to offer is is that model. But it only works if people support it. So so I hope that people will read our editorials and I hope that people will, will go to our website, become a member, make a donation of five, ten or twenty five dollars a month to support the award winning work that we do, um, because if people don't then media like this will cease to exist and all of the media that we consume will be driven by, by corporate interests and corporate bottom lines. And we already see how problematic that is. If you wonder why it is the media are so out of touch, for instance, when it comes to climate change, when we are all reading the science and the reports and we know what's happening on climate change, but you read media and it's a, a totally different world where it makes perfect sense to, to, to build all the pipelines we can and to massively continue to massively expand the, the oil sands, that has a lot to do with the, the corporate interests that own so many of the media outlets in this country. Yeah. So if you value independent public interest journalism, it's important to support it. It's important to support shows like yours. I know you have a Patreon as well, David. Yeah. And, uh, and, and to support outlets like Ricochet, because if we don't pay for the media that we need and that we want, it will disappear. Great. So uh, I'll have those links to support uh, Ricochet below the video. So uh, any viewers can, can go uh, check out and, and support Ricochet here. And uh, thanks for joining me, uh, Ethan and, and Gabrielle. And uh, good luck in your fight. Thank you. Thank you.